Lord, we are thankful for your inspired word that your Holy Spirit works through and makes alive in our hearts, Lord, as it's read, as it's preached, as we listen and hear. Um, Lord, you are at work, and we ask now for you to have freedom with us, to accomplish what you desire, to shape us into the people that you want us to be. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? Lord, what we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me, as your messenger today, to be faithful, to preach your truth for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, was for the most part a time of great progress in our country. The country was very optimistic with the hope of the Industrial Revolution kind of behind it, to giving everyone this sense that humanity was on the right path. It was on the, the brink of something great, the construction of great buildings, the production of automobiles, the, the building of ships and aircraft. All of that was impressive, and all of those and much more were visible signs of society's progress. An abundance of factories were established so that household items could be in every home. And everywhere in America, there were, were tangible and visible signs of the good that was yet to come. Mankind was reaching a new height, and only greater progress was yet to come. And then... In 1914, World War I began, and it shocked mankind to its core to realize that its dream of this utopian world, of the industrial and technological, even the, the medical advances that had taken place and the progress that had, had been accomplished was still a pipe dream. It doesn't realize. It was gloriously touted as the war to end all wars. How's that going for us today? But have you seen the pictures of the men in the trenches? The kind of lives that they had to live and endure? The kind of suffering physically and psychologically that they had to endure simply to gain 200 yards of land? In French soil, it was a demoralizing time. Following that was the Great Depression of the 1930s that saw the economy implode. Prices dropped so much that factories could not employ people to make their goods. Farmers couldn't sell their grain because it wasn't worth anything. And people found themselves out of work simply trying to eke out an existence with what little they had. Simply thankful to have a roof over their head and some meager food on their plate. And some of us have had grandparents and great-grandparents we've interacted with that lived through that time and they kept everything. And then in 1939, the Second Great War, we know it as World War II, 
took place in this German leader, we all know the name, Adolf Hitler, whose drive was to establish a utopian society governed by the Aryan race. This was going to be progress, not just for Europe, but for the world. But the allied forces of England and USA and Russia and China, Australia and Canada and many others joined together to stand against Hitler, ultimately defeating him in 1945, but not before six million Jews and other despised people groups were murdered in the gas chambers and firing squads under Hitler's control. Not before thousands of civilians died in the conflict over cities, and in particular, some of the records say that the blitz that took place from Germany over into England, that 40,000 civilians died, 20,000 of them in the city of London alone. This is man's progress. And since then, there have been wars and there have been rumors of wars, and we've had the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the war in the Middle East, and there are just ongoing wars. And those are only wars which America is related to. What are all the other ones that, that the society doesn't even report on? And we're left to ask ourselves, has society really made any progress? With all its advancements, are we truly living in a better world? Friends, this is the question being asked by the preacher in Ecclesiastes here. At the end of the day, after all the hard work of life, is there really any gain? So our text has two parts to it. And as we go through that, we're going to add a third part, which is our response to it. How this works here today is we're going to, we're going to dive into this deep, dark hole. <laughs> and we're going, to, we're going to feel it. We, we're, going to, we're going to, in a sense, just experience it to some degree. And we're going to fight our way out of that hole, not according to man's way, but according to God's thinking. Just as Ed mentioned this morning, it's time for us to rethink how we view this world, to, to rethink our perspective, to think through how we, how we view what God wants to do His work in and through us in the world in which we live. If you notice in your handout, there's a question, there's an answer, and there's a, a response. So let's look at the question. It's just one verse. And here's what the, the, the writer says. Here's what the preacher says. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And I want to make a few observations. They're up on the screen, but I'll elaborate on what's there. You have man here, and it's interesting, the word Adam in the Hebrew here, um, that, that word man there, and it takes us back and reminds us of the fall of Adam. And it's never far from the preacher's mind. This is man this is man in the state where, where, where uh, the world has been left now because of the fall of Adam. Life under the sun. Then there's this word toil. It's the ordinary Greek, uh, Hebrew word for work, but sometimes it has a negative connotation. And that's what we have here. And it reminds us of Adam's curse as a result of the fall. Just listen to Genesis 3, 17 through 19. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. When you're out there, you know, working and, and sweating and struggling, don't get angry at God, get angry at Adam. The curse is the result of his sin against God, and we are experiencing that world together. Then there's this idea of under the sun. This is the world uh, that, that man experiences both, um, or say both, Secular, religious, as well as those who are truly Christian. All of us are living in this world under the sun. There's another, I want to say, world in the heavens, which is where God rules and reigns. He rules and reigns on the earth. But there's this, this life under the sun now that is in this, this cursed condition. And then this idea of gain. It's a commercial term, ordinarily used in the context of business. And it means a surplus or what is left over. In other words, what profit have we made? That's the idea behind it. So the goal here is, is toward anyone in business who is working, the goal is to turn a profit as a reward for one's labor. Therefore, gain is this return on investment. So again, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Notice the word toiler is used twice. This is a toil. This is a labor. This is a hardship. Is there any gain? Is there any profit for me? So here's the proposition then. Is there any return on investment for hard work under the sun? Now, this is not an uncommon question. Uh, we might, we might you know, think through this question in a little different context, but it's a similar question. Should I watch this show or not? Should I visit this website or not? What profit will it give me? What gain will it have? Should I eat some fruit or some ice cream? Some of you would say, my solution is both, all right? Strawberry ice cream, right? Chocolate, isn't chocolate a fruit? I mean, isn't it? All right, it's one of the, all right. Um, should I go out with this friend? who may not be the best influence on me? Or should I do something else? Should I spend time in this place or is this not a healthy place for me? These are all questions we ask. Why? Because we're asking the question, what is in it for me? What's the profit? What's the gain? So every day we're weighing out the question, is there any gain for me in these differing things? But it also speaks to bigger issues that we face in life. Like following the American dream. It's been work, work, work. Bills, bills, bills. Mortgage, mortgage, mortgage. I followed the American dream, but I'm still in debt. Has it really been worth it? Or the world of health. I've gone to the gym regularly throughout my life, working on my arms, working on my legs, working on my chest. I've watched my diet. I've been careful to eat only the good things that I should eat. I've been diligent with my health. And now I've been diagnosed, 40 years old, with cancer. 
What do I have to show for it? Or about investment. I've bought homes and fixed them up so I can sell them or rent them. I've even uh, invested in apartments and then the, the crash happens in society and I had to, had to foreclose on these things. Was this investment even worth it? Has there been any gain for me? I studied for years to get this degree and have chosen to sacrifice my wants and my desires so that I could get ahead of the pack and land a good job. And now that I have this job, I'm finding it's not all I thought it was going to be. I have this huge student debt. And quite frankly, I'm not thrilled at the job I have. Has it really been worth it? Friends, these are real questions, right? And I'm sure in your circumstance, you could ask your question related to the things that you're struggling with. Friends, the preacher is looking for the bottom line. Now hear this. He's willing to be diligent. He wants to do hard work, but first he wants to know the cash value. Is there a payoff? Will working so hard be worth it? Will I be accomplishing anything? What will I have for all my hard work? Friends, the preacher is saying to us that there is a weariness in all our work and labor under the sun. Jesus addresses the same question in Mark 8, if you remember. He says to the disciples, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, there's a weighing out going on there. And Jesus is addressing this very issue. That's the question that we must face today. And the rest of the, uh, of the verses now in our text are the answer. So let's jump in now to find out the answer. The, the clear answer to the question here is what? Is there any gain? The answer is no. The answer is nothing. But the preacher here, and by the way, I'm saying preacher because his name is Koheleth, and he's how he's titled, right? If you didn't catch that, you weren't here last year, that's what's going on. But he wants to drive home his point, so he gives us Three truths or three axioms to ponder in verses 4 through 11. Here's the first one. Nothing really changes. Now, he's going to talk about two arenas. He's going to delve into them where he's going to show us that nothing really changes under the sun. But here's the reality. Things do change. I mean, there are certain changes. that We are experiencing some progress in the world. I mean, we do have electricity, right? You're sitting on comfortable pews rather than just wooden pews. You have a cell phone probably in your pocket of some kind. And what we need to recognize here is that this is wisdom literature. And in wisdom literature, the writers typically speak in, in generalities. They give us statements that we're supposed to ponder, that we're supposed to chew on for some time. So these statements are like tea bags, so to speak, which we must allow to, to steep so that we can get all the, the goodness out of them. If we just kind of respond in a jerky kind of way to them and, and not let them settle and kind of fester in the cup of our lives, so to speak. We're going we're gonna to miss the robust flavor of the statement being made. We must also marinate in them, allow them then to work 
their way in us. So with wisdom literature, we must seek to squeeze out the truth and then let the truth settle in us. You see what's going on here? And that's why in wisdom literature, he's taking us on a journey. And you're going to see that throughout uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. He's taking us on a journey kind of down into a dark hole to bring us up again. He wants us to feel the despair. So here's the first arena. And the arena is nature. And the emphasis here is that nature keeps moving on. And he introduces four arenas under this topic of nature. Earth, wind, fire. Now, some of you in the disco days don't have to kind of start up and start dancing, all right? But he's pulling these four elements together. Earth, wind, fire, and water. First of all, the earth. The earth remains forever. This is what it says, verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The emphasis here in this verse is not on the generations. It's actually on the earth. A generation is usually considered to be about 20 years. I have a little quiz here today. You can raise your hands if you want to. There's the GI generation. I don't know that we have anyone from that generation. People born 1901 to 1927. There's the 1928 through 1945 generation, the silent generation. Then there's the next generation called the baby boomers, all right, 1946 to 1964. Any of of you there? Good as a few of you, all right. Generation X, 1965 to 1980, that's me. I'm really on the front end of that, okay. 1981 to 1996, Generation Y, also known as the Millennials. And just so you know, Millennials are no longer teenagers. All right, they're like 30-somethings going into 40, right? So we talk about Millennials. They're, they're, they're already kind of, they're on their way out, so to speak, right? Then there's Generation Z, and then there's Generation Alpha, all the way up to where we live today. And friends, each generation has characteristics that are associated with their time on earth, primarily looking at it from a Western perspective. They each have unique understanding of how things work, why things are broken, and how we should fix them. (laughs) That's why you get a gathering of people that are multi-generational. You're going to get different perspectives. I mean, you get someone that was there during the the, the Great Depression, they're going to be like, why are you throwing that away? that can still be used for something. I might be able to use that someday. That's why I have a garage, and there's no car in it. There's just my junk in there, right? There's certain characteristics, but you understand what's behind all that because they lived in a day where you couldn't really get value in money. You had value in stuff. You could just get. You held on to it. Some have faced deep hardships and trials. Others have faced wars and turmoil. And one generation may be rising, and as it's rising, it's pushing out a past generation until it's gone. And in all these generations, people have come and gone, but the earth remains the same. Let me try and push this a little bit more in your thinking. Have you ever been to Yosemite and stood on top of El Capitan or one of the other special sites in that park? Or maybe you've stood at the bottom of El Capitan. That might be better for most of us. And have you ever thought to yourself, how many generations 
have come to this park, have stood in this place, and have seen what I have seen. The 49ers generation, I do not mean football. The pioneer generation, coming and standing and looking at this incredible rock in this beautiful place. Generations come and go, but the earth, El Capitan, remains the same, right? You go put your hand on the rock, and you're probably putting your hand in a place where someone from generations ago also put their hand. It's a powerful thing. Or maybe... You like to go to Half Moon Bay or Pacifica or Monterey or Ocean Beach behind San Francisco. And you stand on that beach and you look out into the ocean and you see the waves coming in. And the very place that you're standing is the very place that people for generations have stood and done the same thing. But the ocean hasn't gone. I know media will tell you it's going, but the ocean hasn't gone. But the generations have come and gone. Maybe you visited some places in Europe. You stood in a Roman villa, or maybe you walked on an ancient castle, or maybe visited a medieval church, and you think to yourself, how many people have stood under this arch, or walked on this castle wall, or worshipped in this ancient building, but the earth beneath these places has stood the test of time. Friends, there have been some changes certainly on our earth. There's been some erosion here and there. There's been some movement of, of dirt. There's been increase of vegetation in certain parts and, and movement as far as the weather patterns are concerned. We understand that. But the earth remains. And generations come and go but you're still going to be able to hop off whatever it is you're hopping off. Of. You know, it could be a boat, it could be a horse, it could be a car, it could be a bicycle. I don't know what, but you're going to jump down on the earth and you're going to grab a piece of it that has been there way longer than any of the generations. See, the cycle of generations comes and goes but the earth remains forever. That's his point. Now, we're not going to spend as much time on the next four, but we'll let, or next three, I should say, let's notice what they are. The sun, it keeps on rising and setting. Through generations, the sun rises and it sets again. There may be drought or famine or storms or flooding or wars or sickness or peace or calm, rioting in the streets, community celebrations. The sun still rises and the sun still sets. All of these verbs, by the way, are in a continuous action over and over, day after day. The sun rises, the sun sets, it never stops. It hastens to the place it rises. And, and the word hastens has the idea of weariness of repetition. Literally, it returns to panting. Notice the note if you have the ESV, note number three, at least in my Bible is number three. It returns panting. It's exhausted in its monotony. Now, friends, we're, we live in a beautiful place. How many of you enjoy looking at the sunsets? Do you go out every night 
and watch the sunset? Do you get up every morning and watch the sunrise? No. Why? Because it just becomes commonplace to us. Right? God's beauty, the sun, it's there. But it's old news. We just get on with life. The wind, we have the same thing going on here. This is what he says. The wind blows to the south and goes around the north, and around and around it goes the wind on its circuits, and the wind returns. Now, we understand this from the perspective of the writer who's living in Israel. The patterns of the wind are different maybe than the patterns of the wind here, although I would say somewhat similar. But he says the wind comes from the north, it blows in, then the wind comes from the south. It goes through its various patterns. But day after day, the wind blows, and it doesn't really stop blowing. It blows through the trees, it blows through the the grain fields, it blows into the valleys, it blows lightly at times, it it blows with a fury at others, but it keeps blowing on its circuit only to do it another day, day after day after day. Sun, wind, earth, then the streams. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. Can you relate to what the preacher is saying here? Have you ever stood on a large river and asked yourself the question, where in the world does all this water come from? I mean, it's just amazing. How how come this river is so huge? And you know the answer, because you learned it in sixth grade science, but you're still amazed and still asking the question. And then you start thinking, All right, so I have an idea of where it's coming from, but where in the world is it going? And when it goes into the ocean, how come the ocean isn't going like, why are the seas not getting larger if the water is flowing from the springs and the mountains into the streams and the rivers? Year after year, cycle after cycle of water flow. Some years there's a shortage, we understand that. Some years there's an abundant flooding. We experience both of those. But eventually things right themselves and the cycle flows again. Now this would have been a particular question for the the writer here living in Israel where the Dead Sea is landlocked and has no outlet to another body of water. Yet for centuries, the Jordan River has flowed into it. But the sea is not rising. Where does it go? Now, he's he's trying to stress a point. All this activity is happening. All this cycling is taking place. Three things stand out just from these illustrations. Number one, what happens in nature is repetitive. Right? day after day. Secondly, what happens in nature is ordinary. It's always happening. And by the way, just stop. All of what I've just said, all of what the writer has just said is happening right now. As we sit here, wind is blowing. Water is moving. Right? Sun is somewhere in its orbit. The earth still remains. Repetitive, ordinary, and what happens in nature is endless. It keeps on going after generations come and go. Now friends, life seems to be the same. 
doesn't it? Everything seems to be in a rut. We are, where is this progress? Where is this profit that we're, we're longing for? You work your whole life for one company, and what do you have to show for it? Today, you might be lucky to have a retirement party. You might be fortunate enough to get some kind of retirement watch or a clock or some kind of paperweight. Then you retire, and there are all sorts of work to be done around the house. There are meals to cook, floors to scrub, grandchildren to babysit, to pick up from school, and more clothes to wash. This is life under the sun. Repetitive, empty, weary. It's vanity. That's what the writer is saying. And nature is his first illustration. But from nature now, he moves to man. And he shows us here that man keeps hungering for more. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye cannot satisfy with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So we have the mouth, we have the eye, and we have the ears. The mouth cannot utter the answer. A man's words are insufficient to explain the weariness. You've probably said something like this before. I'm really tired this week. Anyone? Okay, all right, just me. Okay, very good, all right. Man, I need a break. You ever said that before? But all of us know that the weariness that we're experiencing is deeper than something physical. It's not something that can be remedied by an extra nap. It's not something that can be remedied by a vacation. And the mouth cannot even utter it. The eyes are not satisfied with seeing. Man keeps seeing and wants to see more. We know that so very well in our social media context because we're on our phones and we want to flip more and we want to flip more. And maybe if I, I just flip down a few more inches, there's going to be something more that's going to capture my attention that I can feast my eyes on that's going to fill me with some new information. I want more, I want more, I want more. You probably experienced that before. You've been sitting there on your phone or on your tablet or your computer and you've been kind of surfing along the ways and all of a sudden an hour's gone. Because your eye has been hungering for more and it is never satisfied. The ears, they're not filled with hearing. They want to listen to more and hear more. More knowledge, more information. The podcasts you want to listen to, you want to catch up on them. You want to make sure you hear it. You don't want to be left behind. You want more. You want to hear more. You want to see more. And you can express this angst that you have in your heart. Man keeps hungering for more friends. With all the advances in technology, has man made any real progress? Is he really better connected with community? Is he really happier and more contented in life? Is he really satisfied with the life that he is living? Studies that I have looked at personally seem to indicate that man is not happier. He's not more connected. He's not even satisfied. In fact, the opposite is true. He's disconnected from his community because he has become just another contributor to the discussion. He's just a, 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 you know, some, some text on a page with a picture. There's no real relationship taking place. He's still discontent because now he sees 
all the bells and whistles that everyone else has, which are not really what they have. You know, you've seen those pictures on Facebook or Instagram, whatever, and it's, it's their personal imagery, and you're like, now, I know that person, but that doesn't look like that person. They got an angle completely different, and they look far younger than they really are, and blah, 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 blah. See, we're all trying to present something greater than what is actually true about who we are. That's what we run into. And so we, we're discontent because we're trying to catch up. He's still looking for answers to satisfy his emptiness that he feels in his heart. Now, don't get me wrong. The advances in technology have been a wonderful thing. I don't have to get up from my lazy boy to change the TV station. Yes, right? I can FaceTime my children and grandchildren anytime I want. It's an amazing thing. I can now do it yourself because I'm watching... YouTube videos, saving some money on my car and changing a light bulb and things like that. It's great. Those are, that's, that's progress. That's helpful. But technology is simply just a thing. And friends, what mankind needs is not a thing. What mankind needs is a person. We're trying to find our happiness and our joy and a satisfaction in things rather than in a person. So that, that, that's, the, that's the first point. Nothing really changes. Oh, there's change, but it doesn't really ultimately change. Secondly, in these last two, we're not going to be as long on. Nothing is really new. The preacher isn't speaking here about specifics. He's speaking about generalities. Certainly, there's been an, a new iPhone that's come out or it will be coming out, right? There may be new and improved kind of laundry detergents and new recipes that you want to try, but, but mankind has always been looking for ways to better communicate, to keep things clean, and to cook food. And so there is nothing new there. That's why it says in verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before. So history shows us that war is nothing new. Famine is nothing new. Injustice is nothing new. Racism is nothing new. Marriage and bearing children is nothing new. Man seeks security. What did he do in ancient times? He went to live inside of a city that had walls to protect them from enemies that might be marauding in the, city, in the area. And today we put the bolts on our doors and we have you know security systems it's the same thing we want security might be fleshed out differently it's the same thing and man has always been stressed technology has allowed us to do more in shorter amounts of time because of our apps and our gadgets and our devices but has technology taken the stress away what's the answer absolutely not if anything we could say it has increased our stress because now people expect us to have an output that reflects the newness of technology. But see, nothing's really changed and nothing's really new. There's nothing new under the sun. It has been already in the ages before as history repeats itself again and again. Nothing's really changed. Nothing is really new. And nothing is really remembered 
verse 11. There's no remembrance in former things. Again, notice the, if you have the ESV, notice the, the footnote there. The former people. There's no remembrance in former people. In other words, past generations. Nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I think the, the New International Version, I think, I think communicates it in a smoother way. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. That's pretty profound, and it's pretty sad. This hits home more than we want it to, doesn't it? Because we want to be remembered. The world might remember notable people, I mean, people who have contributed in some kind of unique way to the world, generals and leaders of armies and nations and politicians and activists, inventors and painters and storytellers and architects and builders and athletes, men and women who stood against abuse and injustice. But the, the reality is, friends, if we're to open the average high school history um, book, you likely only interact with maybe 200 to 250 people that are considered to be worth remembering. And we're living in the Bay Area, which last I checked, and it's been a few years ago, like 4.9 million people. 250 is not that many. And we're not probably part of that 250. And most of us likely will not be remembered. We all may have played a part. I know some of you work in the, the dot-coms and the tech industry. You've been working on different things, and you see it out there, but no one remembers that you were a part of that team. You might get a plaque. You might get some certificate, but no one else really remembers. That's just for you and maybe your family, but no one really knows you to remember what you have done. You're quickly forgotten. You may have been the star player on that state championship high school soccer team. You may be the valedictorian at your university graduation. You may be the winner of the local spelling bee competition. But in the grand scheme of things, you'll be forgotten. So what do we do with all the encouragement we've just received from the preacher? It's kind of a joke. Because this has been a black hole he's been walking us down to, saying, look, nothing's really changed. Nothing's really new. Nothing is really remembered. So what's our response to all this? How should we respond? Well, there's two kind of responses we can look at. First of all, we're going to look at the response of the world. Then we're going to look at the response to the gospel. The response of the world. How does man respond to all of this? Well, the preacher will go on in the book that he's writing here, and he'll go into more detail with the things I'm going to mention here. So I'm going to touch on them but there's three common responses that we can say man has to this empty, wearisome, repeated world. First one is escape. Man seeks to escape. Escapism takes place when man tries to block out the emptiness and weariness of life under the sun by drowning in things that help him forget the endless monotony of life. Sadly, some people escape through things like drugs and alcohol and sex. But there are other ways 
that we try to escape the weariness of life under the sun. Good normal people find themselves binging on Netflix and Hulu and Apple TV or Amazon Prime. Good normal people find themselves consuming themselves in some kind of a hobby or pouring themselves into their work or hiding themselves in a novel or scrolling aimlessly on the internet or passionately following a sports team. But Jesus says to mankind, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, you, there's something you need to take on you. There's something you need to embrace. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus knows that what our souls need is rest. And that rest is found in Christ. So there's escape. Secondly, there's despair. Many people look at life and its emptiness and simply want to give up. Man's circumstance is hopeless. His life is depressing. So why even continue living? Listen to the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. He writes this, it was true. I had always realized it. I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but on inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking that there were, uh, that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. This is the despair that even smart intellectuals can come to. Such emptiness and despair is where many people who don't know Christ live. But the Apostle Paul shouts at us in Philippians 4.13 that in Christ we can be content in every circumstance. And that word content isn't a giving up. It's a settledness to say, because I'm in Christ, no matter what the circumstances are, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am content. So the answer to despair is finding contentment in the Lord. The third one is man seeks to indulge. This is how many, if not most people, respond to the weariness and emptiness and the vanity of the monotony of life under the sun. They live for pleasure as the ultimate pursuit. Can't wait for Friday. Can't wait for the weekend. Oh, we're going to have fun together. Yes, we are. Okay. Slogan is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We know that we're dying. So let us live life to the fullest and enjoy everything it has to offer. This is the idea of hedonism as a response 
to the empty world that we live in under the sun. That hedonism's counterpart is the joy and the delight and the satisfaction we can have with Christ through the gospel. That wonderful, precious verse, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. He is the one that, the one that will change your very being so that you are full of joy and delight even in this wearisome world. So escape, despair, indulgence. That's how the world responds. But there's a gospel response, friends. And the gospel's response allows the Word of God to direct us in a completely different direction. While God's Word shows us the circular nature of our existence. So even what the, what the preacher is saying here, this is true. These things actually happen. He's not kind of painting something saying this isn't true about the world. It, it is an empty place without God. So while God's Word shows us the circular nature of our existence, it also moves us forward in hope. The answer to the preacher's question isn't what will bring satisfaction, but who will bring satisfaction. And so we must abandon human wisdom and we must embrace divine wisdom. And if I'm going to embrace divine wisdom, then I need to pick up the Word. I need to uh, allow it to, to be filtering into my body in a variety of forms. I need to be thinking God's thoughts to change my perspective, to see life afresh. Yes, this world is not my home. And yes, we're living life under the sun and it's a wearisome, toil-filled life. And yet God still wants me to live with joy in that life. And when we do that, we will receive all the good things of this life as a free gift from God. Isn't that what Jesus promised? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's not a prosperity gospel verse. It can be preached that way falsely. What he's trying to get at is there is fruit that comes as a result of our relationship with Christ. So two things under this response to the gospel. Number one, our work is empty, but Jesus' work makes all the difference. Now, the focus here is on Christ's work. When I talk about the work of Jesus, I'm not talking about Jesus getting up in the morning and going with his father Joseph you know, to, to go be a carpenter or a stonemason. We're talking here about the work that Jesus accomplished in his earthly life and on the cross, his obedience to the Father, his fulfillment of the law, his proclamation of the gospel, his miracles, his sacrifice once for all, his resurrection from the dead. These are all his work. These are the things that he came to do. Listen to the words of Jesus, Mark chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him, that's the Father, who sent me and to accomplish his work. And friends, His work is new. It's only through the work of Jesus that 
the hopeless and empty humanity can find satisfaction where their fundamental problem of sin can be fixed. The work of Christ is the new and living way. But not only is it new, it's remembered. And that's why when we gather together once a month, we remember the Lord as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We eat the bread in remembrance of Him. We drink the cup in remembrance of Him. And we proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. We're remembering. We're remembering. We're remembering. And what is it we're remembering? We're remembering the work of Christ. And every time we're gathered in His name to sing like we've done this morning, to place ourselves under the preaching of His Word, we are remembering Christ. We're welcoming Him into our life by reminding ourselves of who He is and what He has done and what He is accomplishing in us. So even in this world under the sun, we need to have eyes that are fixed on Jesus and to be reminded of, of the Gospel and the impact of the Gospel and the, the fruit of that Gospel in our lives. So our work is empty, but Jesus' work makes all the difference. Secondly, our work is empty, but through Christ we enter a new workforce. Toil. Labor. Still there. But it's a different kind of toil a different kind of labor. Our empty and aimless lives are radically changed to have purpose and meaning in Christ. We're the hands and feet of Christ. We serve one another. We use our gifts. We share the good news of the gospel with others. When you go to work tomorrow morning, yes, you're going to that mundane, everyday job, but you're going as Christ's ambassador to those people. It changes the whole dynamic of what it is you're doing. You live in that neighborhood, you have some neighbors from different countries or have different faiths, and you say, well, wait a second, I have, to, I have to put on the mind of Christ, I have to think about things differently. I am a light shining in the darkness to these people that are around me. You have a new workforce. You're part of that new uh, community that God has created called His church. And at, at the end of the apostles' teaching, on the certainty of the resurrection and our victory in Christ, this is 1 Corinthians 15, he challenges the Corinthian church with these words. You know them very well. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let me ask you, to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding, does that take work? Does that take labor? Does that take discipline? Does that take a mindset? Absolutely. But notice what he says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not what? In vain. This is the answer to the emptiness that life under the sun gives us without Christ. Life under the sun that is yielded to the Lordship of Christ is not empty or in vain. Let me say that one more time. Life under the sun that is yielded to the Lordship of Christ is not empty or in vain. It's a glorious labor for the Lord. And it's where we find purpose. It's where we find satisfaction in your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace relationships, in your community. You can go on. Paul would say this. 
for we are His workmanship, created in Jesus. Does it stop there? For good works. See, the work of Christ has accomplished something in us. It's brought us into the family. It's reconciled us to God. But it bears fruit. And that fruit now allows us to live our lives under the sun with a new and fresh perspective. Friends, He works on us and makes us something new so that we can live our lives under the sun, seeking to glorify Him by bearing fruit from the Gospel, out of the Gospel, wherever He calls us. I'll just bring this to a close. In Christ, everything has changed. Everything has been made new. And all His children will be remembered. <laughs> you know, there's a new name written down in glory, the song says. And it's what? It's mine. In the Old Testament, when the high priest went before the throne of God there in the, in the temple, he, he, he wore uh, the ephod and on there were the, the names of the tribes. And, and as we pop over to Hebrews, the picture there is that when Jesus stands as our intercessor, He stands there with our names on His very chest before the Father. You and I are remembered. We're remembered not by Hollywood, or CNN, or Fox News, or whatever it might be, who are remembered by the very triune God, the creator of this world. So allow the preacher to change your mindset. Allow him to give you a fresh perspective on your life. Allow the emptiness of his observation to drive you to live your life for Jesus. There's a statement that I read this week. Actually, it was a few weeks ago. That I thought was very appropriate. And I loved. And it's succinct. It's crisp. It's clear. And it's helpful. And particularly for me as a pastor. It's the advice of Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He says, preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. Who are you trying to impress? Who are you trying to live for? I want to tweak it a bit so that it's more applicable to you. So maybe this is the Rodrigo von Zinzen Phillips one, all right? Live your life for the Lord. Die. Be forgotten. Then that might go against your grain a little bit. Generations come, generations go. What about my family? I want them to remember me. I understand that. Live for the Lord, leave a legacy, die, be forgotten, and be satisfied that your life is not measured by everything that's in this world or the opinions that are in this world. Your life is measured by what Jesus Christ has done and the Father welcoming you home and saying, I remember you. You're one of mine. 
Lord, help us. Help us to continue to allow ourselves to marinate in this incredible book. Lord, to, 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 to wrestle in our heart with attitudes and mindsets that we kind of catch from this world. Lord, you want to come and you want to, you want to dial those places in our heart to, to reset them, to have our focus on having a mindset that is rooted and anchored in you and you alone. Lord, may this be true of us individually. Lord, may we wrestle with what the preacher in this text is saying. May our goal, may our aim, may our focus, may our desires be for for heavenly implications rather than earthly accolades. May we stop running on the treadmill of life under the sun and start running the race that Christ has called us to. Lord, we need refreshment. We need renewal. We need a fresh focus. We need a fresh awareness, Lord, of what it means to be your child and to live for you. And Lord, we just ask that you would allow the book of Ecclesiastes to continue to do that. Lord, I ask this morning if there are people who are present, who are trying to find satisfaction in escaping in some area of their world, maybe just struggling with despair, maybe chasing after the next pleasure, oh Lord, would you show them the emptiness of that and the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ and His gospel and if those people are truly your children, Lord, would you, would you wake them up and, and refresh them, Lord, with the, the wonderful promises and the joys of what it means to walk with you? And then, Lord, may our church family be one that is encouraging for those who may be struggling with despair, trying to escape, or even pursuing the pleasures of the world, that we will understand the struggle, that we would, we would love people in spite of their struggle, that we would show them Christ, that we would, we would be an example for them, that we would um, be able to, to wrestle with them through that so that they can, they can land in the race and run the race with joy to the finish line. Lord, we need you and we need your body that you've given us and we need the power of your Holy Spirit working through your word to fashion and shape us and to mold us to be what you've called us to be. Help us with that, Lord, we ask in your precious name. Amen.